Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to episode 12 of Attack the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're here to talk about horror movies like we do every other week. That is true. (laughs) Every opposite Monday. That is what we do. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are talking about a movie a long time coming Mm -hmm. and much discussed at the time that it came out, Scream 2022, (laughs) because it's Scream 5, but it's only Scream, but it's Scream 22. 2022 so there's that (laughs) (laughs) the new one the one that just came out that actually we would have talked about sooner but kind of a twofold reason for not discussing it earlier one is just that we saw it in the theater like the night it came out and we wanted to be able to go into the theater experience as fans first and enjoy ourselves and also like our podcast was still like brand brand new (laughs) baby podcast at that point so we kind of decided, like, we don't want to make this, like, a note-taking trip to the theater. <laughs> uh, we just want to make this an enjoyment viewing for the first time. And I think the other reason is, in all fairness, some of the mixed reactions or I guess the complicating factor to Scream coming out at the start of 2022 is that this was sort of the first... I mean, again, I hate the term post-pandemic because we're not post-pandemic, but like, you know, the first air quotes post-pandemic horror film to come out that was theatrical only Mm -hmm. upon its release. We got Halloween Kills last Halloween, and it was a hybrid release. And I know that there were a lot of mixed reactions among fans. Uh, There were a lot of issues raised about accessibility. Obviously, like for us, it was a really great experience to see Scream in the theater. Mm -hmm. But I know that not every fan wanted to or was able to see it in the theater. So I'm also glad that we waited so that more listeners could engage with this episode having seen the movie now that it is available on streaming. It's been VOD for a while, but it's on Paramount Plus now and the DVD is out, which is how we watched it today. Yeah, we tried Paramount Plus, but the perils of streaming, unfortunately, (laughs) include... did not want to cooperate today. Unfortunately, include uh, sometimes it having to stop for streaming. So we watched on DVD, which was pretty awesome. As much as we love podcasting, as much as we love talking about horror movies, the first time you watch a film, especially if it's a franchise that's as close to Juliet and I's heart as Scream, we definitely wanted to go in not having to put our podcast brains on and or our podcast caps on and just watch, you know, and absorb and just bask in the amazingness of Nev Campbell in the theater yes. <laughs> without having to be like, we've got to take a note about that. Yeah, yeah. Like, let me let me be obnoxious and take a little note. The other kind of fun thing for me is always, you know, with a more whodunit film, which, you know, the whole Scream franchise is that... I love getting to watch it the first time and be along for that ride and then to go back the second time and watch it again and say like, 
oh, there was a clue, and oh, here's where my theory about this character went wrong, or here's where my theory was supported but didn't pan out, that kind of a thing. So I, I had a blast. This was, I haven't watched it again since we saw it in the theater. Me neither. Um, earlier today was the first time I had watched it again, and it was really fun saying, oh, I thought this was going to happen, and, and actually, I think I was on to something, but they didn't go in that direction, that kind of a thing. Yeah, definitely. So... We both love the original four Scream movies. Yeah. When did you get to experience the first... The, when was your first watch through of the first Scream movie? Yeah, well, the first Scream movie came out when I was 13. So, like, the perfect age. I didn't get to see it in the theater, unfortunately. Um, but I did get to see it. I mean, pretty iconic viewing or, like, the way you want to view a horror film when you're 13, which is that... A friend of mine at the time rented it from Blockbuster on VHS, and we watched it at a sleepover at her house. And I think, I think maybe she had seen it, like she had an older brother who was like maybe four or five years older. And so I think maybe he had rented it and they watched it together. So like she had already seen it, but she was the only one. And she was like, oh my gosh, you guys are going to love this. And we watched it and... You know, some people were really scared and other people were trying to figure out, like, who the killer was. So, yeah, I will always remember that as being my first viewing of the original Scream. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> you get to watch a slasher film with <laughs> all your friends. Yeah, uh. yeah. And, you know, like, 13 is kind of the perfect age because, you know, we all wanted to, like, dress like Sidney Prescott and all that. I remember, actually, this exact friend found somewhere at the mall a shirt that was actually like the same print that Sydney wore in the Aww. film. It was like a big deal. She was like, oh my God, it's like my Sydney Prescott shirt. So <laughs> <laughs> Well luckily she didn't she never got stabbed. Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> I did not have a especially like memorable first experience because when the first scream movie came out I was six. So obviously didn't watch it when I was six. I didn't watch it until many years later, but it was definitely a moment where I watched it and I had seen other Wes Craven movies like prior to this. So I was familiar with his body of work, but this one I watched and it was one of those things where I'm like holding my hand out towards the TV. Like, are you kidding me? How are we not talking about this still? I can't believe this, you know? Uh, I hadn't heard anything about it because all of the hype had kind of passed by the time, like, I had watched it. And obviously I knew Gail and Dewey and Sydney all survive, like, perpetually because all of the other ones had come out by the time I watched the first one. I think I was, like, 22 or 23. So Scream oh, wow. 4 was already out. So when you were 6 and Scream came out, even though you didn't watch it till much later, what was your, like cultural awareness of the movie because I think of myself and movies like Nightmare on Elm Street mm -hmm. and the Friday the 13th franchise and Candyman I remember like a lot of people talking about in school where I was a little too young to watch them and I didn't have older siblings to like show them to me or anything but I was very like culturally aware of like you know Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and the hockey mask. Like, was Ghostface part of your, like, kind of cultural awareness even as a younger kid? So I don't remember the first one being part of it, but I definitely remember the second one because Ghostface. So my elementary school, I was in second grade at that point, And 
all of the little boys wanted to wear the ghost face costume for Halloween. Yeah. And our elementary school had a blanket ban like you were not allowed to have it that's also when they started making the ghost face masks that had like the pumping blood like you could oh yeah the little squeezy thing (laughs) so like the blood would run down well that was just right out banned so plus i mean ghost face being a pretty iconic killer with a knife so right. you, <laughs> you weren't allowed to wear, like, you couldn't wear the costume. You couldn't have the costume sans knife. Like, you couldn't do it at all. So that was my first understanding of that as part of the cultural milieu, is that seven-year-old boys wanted to come <laughs> to school as Ghostface because we had, like, a whole Halloween parade thing. Yeah, we did, too. Yeah, so they uh, they were like, yeah, no, you cannot wear that. Yeah, for me, I think it was all the seven-year-old boys wanted to come in the hockey masks for Jason Voorhees, if I remember correctly. And that did not fly at a Catholic school, I will tell you that. (laughs) I wonder why. Yeah. Not that those movies have underlying tones about virginity and purity. Exactly. (laughs) They're like, no. So yeah, I definitely remember that very clearly is you can't wear a ghost face mask. And I was like, oh, that's fine. But my babysitter, who infamously showed me my first horror movies... She had a son who was a year or two older than me. He was just ahead of me in school. He was very spoiled. He always got whatever he wanted. And he definitely had the deluxe ghost face pumping blood mask. Nice. And he would chase us around the house with his fake knife all the time. That's fine. That's, yeah. Everything's fine. <laughs> I don't even know if he had seen the movie. I just know that he had to have that costume. So mm-hmm. he had it. But yeah, that was my first impressions of Ghostface. And I mean, that costume has really stayed popular. Like, even now you can see it in the store and like knockoffs. (laughs) It's so funny that, you know, that mask existed before the movie. Like that was just, it was just a generic Halloween mask. And now it's a character like, you know, Ghostface is one of the killers you can play in Dead by Daylight, for example. You know, Ghostface has become this slasher icon just like Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and all these other characters from a generic mask which one could argue Michael Myers was the same way because it was the generic William Shatner mask that they spray right painted. so there's yeah. a there's a legacy to this yeah um just to bring up just a couple of the characters although most of them don't need any introduction um you have Sidney Prescott played by Nev Campbell uh, Gail Weathers played by Courtney Cox Dewey played Dewey Riley played by David Arquette but then we have some new characters which we always love to have an infusion of new blood into a classic horror franchise but we have Sam Carpenter played by Melissa Barrera um, Richie Kirsch played by Jack Quaid, who I love because Jack Quaid has a tendency to play like the good guy yeah. <laughs> all the time in The Boys. I don't know if our listeners also watch The Boys, but if you don't, you probably should because um, he plays like the good guy in that one. He's got very much like a baby face. Definitely. Um, Amber Freeman played by Mikey Madison, who uh, my first experience with her was actually in the Ring movies. She played Samara, not the crawling Samara, but like the Samara on the videotapes of her interviews. And then, of course, we have to bring up because I am so excited that she's in this um, Jenna Ortega, who plays Tara Carpenter, Sam's younger sister. Jenna Ortega just absolutely tearing it up lately. Yeah. And then we've got the band of friends, Wes Hicks, played by Dylan Minnette. We have Mindy Meeks-Martin, played by Jasmine Savoy-Brown, and Chad Meeks-Martin, her twin brother in the movie, played by Mason Gooding. 
And we have Marley Shelton reprising her role as Judy Hicks, Skeet Ulrich reprising his role as Billy Loomis, which is great. And um, we also have a fairly small role for her, but we have Liv McKenzie played by Sonia Amar. So that's our band of characters for that one. But I just have to say a big yes for Jenna Ortega. (laughs) Yeah, agreed, agreed. And Jasmine Savoy Brown. I am just digging her. Like, I want her in all the things. I know. She was such a good homage to her uncle in canon, uh, Randy, Mm -hmm. Um, just being the the voice of reason, the one who has it all figured out, has got all of the tropes pinned, you know, just perfect. Loved it. Yeah, she's great. But Jenna Ortega, we've seen a ton of movies with her in it recently. She was in Studio 666 for a fairly small role, but big impact in that one, Studio 666. Lots of fun. I heard a lot of criticisms of it. It's like, it's a horror movie about a band like I mean it was lovingly exactly what it purported itself to be true you know <laughs> and she was also in X which yes. hopefully cross our fingers we'll get to feature eventually when everybody gets to see it once it comes out on video or DVD but yeah we have been loving her lately absolutely yeah and she's very young like when she started filming this she was 17 mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. exciting can't yeah. wait to see what she what she Jamie Lee Curtis blooms into being absolutely (laughs) so interesting way to start a movie just like all of the scream movies we've got an opening kill scene except in this one we don't have a kill yeah which i love yeah turning it on its head there are so many moments in this movie that harken back to the original by virtue of staging or location or you know the structure of the scene and then just twist it on its head a little bit it's really fun yeah you're definitely walking in thinking i know what's going to happen or i'm a seasoned scream viewer i'm going to be able to point out exactly what's happening throughout the movie and then just having your expectations twisted just a teeny tiny bit and doing it in so many different scenes in so many different ways, like whether it be dynamic between characters, whether it be a love story or lack of love story, whether it be using a trope and just turning it a little bit, we'll definitely crack into several more of those instances. But a Scream movie doesn't open unless there's an opening kill. And in this one, I love that not only do we not have an opening kill, the person at the beginning of the movie ends up being a major character. Yeah, which, you know, when the original Scream came out, it was that opening scene and the marketing leading up to it was, of course, an homage to Psycho. Mm -hmm. Because the whole time, I mean, Nev Campbell was certainly popular prior to Scream coming out because of Party of Five. Sure. And The Craft was already out at that point. But she was not, Drew Barrymore was a much bigger star at mm-hmm. that moment. Um, and so, of course, all of the advertising focused on Drew Barrymore is in this horror film. And just like with Psycho with Janet Lee, you know, there's all this advertising, you know, this person is the star of this horror film and they get killed off very, very quickly. And really, your protagonists are newer actors or, mm-hmm. you know, folks that you're meeting along the way. So that was the setup for the original Scream. And this, of course, turns it on its head because Jenna Ortega's character lasts the entire movie. Yeah. She's one of the survivors, not one of the victims. Yeah, and definitely a torch being passed throughout the course of this movie. So one of the things I noticed in this one, and we can call it a Wes Craven hallmark 
or we can say it's something that we see a lot in movies that, especially movies at the end of the 80s all the way up until now. Let's talk about phones in screen movies. It's a hallmark of a screen movie also to have a killer calling you on the phone, Mm -hmm. on your cell phone, on your house phone, which that happens like as cell phone technology evolved, obviously. But you always have a killer calling and asking what's your favorite scary movie. And prior to this, Wes Craven obviously used telephones a lot in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. There's that very famous scene of Nancy getting Freddy's tongue through the receiver (laughs) of the phone. But I wondered if we could maybe kind of plumb the depths of this phone thing. And danger, like in using the phone or danger coming through the phone in Wes Craven movies or in the Scream franchise. Well, it's really interesting, first and foremost, the conscious use of a phone and the conscious adaptation of phone technology throughout the movies. There are so many horror films that, for better or for worse, you know, when cell phones really started becoming popular, especially smartphones, there was this moment in horror where everyone was like, oh, man, like, how are you going to deal with the sort of classic trope of, like, the killer cuts the phone lines and you can't call for help, that kind of a thing. And some directors and writers have completely embraced it, cell phones and smartphones and all that, and others just kind of act like cell phones don't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, Some shows even have started doing this sort of hybrid thing with technology where it obviously takes place in the modern era, but the technology, they just don't acknowledge, like, nobody has a computer. I'm thinking, like, things like Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Mm -hmm. that take place now, but also, like, you never see a computer, you never see a smartphone in that show. Yeah. And that's very intentional, because they Mm -hmm. just don't want to mess with it for the sake of the story. Yeah. But I like that the Scream franchise has always really embraced not just phones, but the sort of blending. Like, we see, we still see some house phones in this new one, but we also see cell phones, and they're both a part of the plot. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot to say about the fear of technology. You know, telephones, when they first became a technology in people's homes, were, on the one hand, useful, but kind of scary. You know, you're bringing people's voices into your home. Things like the evolution of telephones where you had the party line, where you could listen into other people's conversations. Um, And then, of course, we see, you know, still conversations about smartphones and how much we're using them, the dangers for kids, the pros and cons of being able to track people. So I I like that horror. I like it when horror can play with those ideas a little bit. Yeah. There are lots of horror movies where they just are, they kind of like explain the cell phone thing away by saying, we don't have service. Right. I mean, you see that all the time, which is I mean, in some cases, it serves the purpose of the movie. But in some cases, it's like, this is a little bit of a kind of a cop out, you know, like, like, oh, it's convenient that you don't have service. Like, oh, of course, you're in a place that doesn't have service. Like, I have Verizon, and I am almost positive there's almost nowhere that I don't have any service. Like, it has to be the real deep wilderness. We're not talking about somebody's big old house, <laughs> you know, in the middle, <laughs> even if it's out in the middle of nowhere, like we're talking like cabins or, you know, crazy Southeastern Ohio, where you're like, I am not sure where I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I just think it's interesting that in the Scream franchise, 
whoever it is that gets killed or most of the time at the beginning of the movie, with the exception of the second one, answering the phone is an invitation to danger. Yeah. Like Drew Barrymore's character in the first one, like she didn't really have anything to do with the overarching story of Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker and Sydney's mom. And I think her name's Maureen. And yeah, Maureen Prescott, you know, seducing Billy's dad and all that. Drew Barrymore's character didn't have anything to do with that. And but yet she answered the phone and that invited this terrible, awful thing from outside in. And it's the same thing in this movie. Uh, In this one, it's more planned. There's a overarching plan. She is integral to the story of the ghost faced in this one. But she answers the phone and it invites the bad into her home. I just thought that was interesting. It's kind of like the principle of like vampires. Like they have to be invited in first and foremost. Like you, the the victim or the, you know, you have to invite them in first before they can enter and do whatever it is they're going to do. Yeah. And for the most part, with the exception of, I think, two instances, I think Dewey answers the phone in one of the Scream movies, and then Cotton Weary also answers the phone in another one. Mm -hmm. All of the people who are answering phones in the Scream series are all women. And women have a tendency to be the ones who use the phone most or answer the phone, at least stereotypically. But in these movies, definitely, it's a trope. Women answer the phone, the bad comes in. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's interesting that they honored that in this one, too. Uh, Tara answers the phone and what comes but the bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. An homage, certainly, to what Wes had built. And we see that throughout this movie. Like, there's literally a character in the movie called Wes. Yeah. Uh, Sheriff Judy's son. His name is Wes. And there's also a banner, which I didn't realize it until I saw it in the original when we first saw it. But then I didn't actually critically think about it until this time. At the party at the end of the movie at Amber's house, there's a banner that says for Wes. And I was like, he's dead. Why would they hang a banner that says for Wes for a dead kid? Like, are they having a rager? Like, oh, he died, so we're going to celebrate him. <laughs> I mean, it is high school. <laughs> I guess any excuse for a party, right? Yeah. I just thought that was like, I was like, this is so strange. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, let's have this gigantic party. And also, like, not only are they ostensibly having a party for this dead kid, they haven't figured out who killed him or his right, mom or right. anybody else but i mean that kind of happens in the first scream too where they have this like raging party and they're still very much a killer on the loose and they're just kind of like eh, whatever you know kids don't make sense no kids don't make sense <laughs> teenagers especially like, yeah there's a lot of hormones happening there's a lot of like you know temptation with drinking and premarital sex which oh boy (laughs) this movie's always (laughs) do moving to some like kind of bigger umbrella ideas of this movie sam and tara's mom mothers are very 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 important in the scream series yes and family in general yeah like the first movie billy's mom abandons his dad because dad loomis has an affair with maureen prescott In this movie, we also kind of go back to that exact same thing. We have Sam and Tara. Well, Sam's dad, not Tara's dad. But Sam's dad is Billy Loomis. And her last name is Carpenter. But we don't know who Sam and Tara's mom is. 
There's mention that she's an alcoholic. I think Amber says that her, her mom's an alcoholic at one point, but we don't know who their mom is. So I'm very interested in forthcoming movies because there's definitely going to be at least one more. Um, they've already greenlit six. I wonder who their mom is. Yeah, and I have read that the writers do know that they've already made that decision about who their mom is and that they had some thought to revealing that in this movie, but they made the decision not to because they really wanted the movie to be Sam and Tara's movie and not get into that just yet. Mm -hmm. They felt like it detracted from the story of the sisters a little bit, but I will be curious to see who who she is because I think we'll find out in subsequent films because whomever it is it has to be somebody that Billy was either cheating with Sydney on correct or somebody that he had been with right before Sydney because I think they're seniors in high school in the last movie they're either juniors or seniors right yes okay I think they're seniors so they'd be like 17 18 19 so it has to and obviously Billy's story ends at the end of the first one he is definitely right irrevocably dead yeah totally dead <laughs> um well i mean at least in our his physical form yes. <laughs> <laughs> until this movie but he's dead so whomever it is whoever is the mother of sam has to be somebody who is because it's 23 years which that makes sense that tracks it has to be somebody that he was with either at the same time as Sydney or right before. Yeah, you would presume that she would have either been pregnant during the events of the first Scream film or maybe had just given birth. Yeah. You know, and whether that was there or not to say it doesn't happen now, but especially in 1996, it was still very plausible that in a small town you might have a young woman who gets pregnant in high school and goes elsewhere yeah. to have a baby and returns later, especially as a senior, maybe after your classmates have graduated and gone, returns to your hometown or returns to your hometown much later as an adult. Right. The way I think about it is, yeah, he was either with their mom right before he got together with Sydney or he was cheating on her. Yeah. Because one of the things that is a very large theme in the first Scream movie is Sydney revoking Billy's... They, they were having sex before Sydney's mom died. Right. There's a mention in the movie, he's like, well, you didn't have a problem before. And he and Sydney were having sex, or were at least like sexually active in some way. Maybe they yeah. haven't, hadn't actually taken that step, but they were certainly getting there. And one of the big themes in that movie is that Sydney will not go the final step with Billy. Mm -hmm. And later she does. Later he kind of like browbeats her into a point where she actually does have sex with him. And it's very, like, it, it's not a romantic scene by no, any means. No, no, it's not. And... While she tells him that she's ready for it afterwards and kind of the aftermath when they're both putting their clothes back on, it definitely seems like there's some reticence there. Like mm -hmm. there's some, maybe she rushed into something that she wasn't really feeling or she thought that that would placate him and make him feel happy. And there's some heavy scenes in that particular instance, but the withholding of sex or affection 
is definitely a theme in the Scream movies, and I think that this is no exception. Maybe more of in a minor way, but the idea of being sexually available or being willing to go that next step is something that we see here too. There's a like a line that kind of Richie throws out at Sam as, at, that she's sexually available, like sexually available women don't have morals or whatever mm-hmm. it is that he says exactly. But I just think it's interesting that they bring the idea of sexual agency and like owning your sexuality or having a man shame you for your sexual, you know, your sexual activities or whether or not you sleep with somebody on the first date or whatever is something that they keep bringing back, like, it's 25 years since the first... No, I guess not. Well, because it was supposed to come out 25 years. It was 25 years and 25 days Mm -hmm. since 1996 came out. And we're still judging women based off of their sexual choices, even now. We see that play out between Chad and Liv, and they do it in a really interesting, more updated way, which is to say at the beginning of the movie when we see when we're introduced to the friends all of the friends there's kind of this passing comment about how chad and Liv haven't had sex yet and he's kind of eager to live not so much but she's not a virgin you know that is made very clear that she did hook up with an older guy over the summer we see him a couple of times he's one of the victims vince (laughs) and it's really interesting to see sexual choice at the beginning of the film not framed in, you know, the patriarchal concept of virginity. It's just more, she's not ready at the stage that they are in their relationship to have sex yet. And then later in the film, it gets flipped and Liv says, I'm ready. And Chad's like, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, Which is all framed in sort of the murderers and the killer and who's the killer and all of that. But how refreshing to see a cis man, especially a of the teenage variety. A jock, no less. Yeah, a jock, uh, someone who is coded as being, you know, the sort of example of high school masculinity saying, like, in a, you know, relatively kind way, just like, no. I'm not ready. I don't No, Not right now. Yeah. Um, very surprising. I mean, ridiculous that that's refreshing, yeah. but it was very refreshing to see that. If you can't tell, Juliet and I are both very sex positive. Yes. And exploring themes of sex positivity in movies now versus 1996, because I think that 1996 was kind of dealt with in a very caring way, too, because... Then Sydney was not a virgin, but our bad guy, our big bad Billy Loomis, was very pushy and it was portrayed in a way that was very icky. Like yeah. it makes you feel gross at how how much weight he's putting on these things and how, the fact that he bounces back between like, yeah, well, my mom abandoned me. Let's have sex. Yeah, your mom's dead. Get over it. Let's have sex. It's right, like, right. That's all he's thinking about. And now we're in a movie in, you know, 25 years and change later. We're exploring sex positivity and that not being the be all end all of the reason why a girl gets murdered or the reason why a boy gets murdered. And it was really very lovely to see exploring sex positivity and also like, you know, Richie's character being eventually killed and yeah. like well you're so easy you let me in so easily and it's like well 
she was not, you know, looking out for a guy who was going to make a movie about her murder. Yeah. And I think, too, that's so not just sex, but also safety, like feeling Mm -hmm. safe and trusting people and how women should not have to kind of hold hold a wall up between because you get criticized for either having too much of a wall between right. yourself and a potential suitor but you're also criticized for letting somebody in too quickly. Yeah. So yeah. we play with that in this too like oh well shame on her for letting Richie in so quickly like well yeah she wanted to have a boyfriend she wasn't expecting he was going to be a psycho. I like that that moment only is it's only articulated at the very end when we very clearly see Richie as a villain in like full on villain mode. And it is not meant to call into question Sam's morals or her choices. It's to illustrate like him articulating that is to illustrate like this guy is the, you know, one of the villains, you know, and he is not the person that you thought he was and he's pretty psychotic in a lot of ways and is very very toxic it's really used to illustrate his toxicity it's a commentary on him not on sam when he says that exactly we we'd never see sam get any further retribution for that it's not something that anybody else brings up it's nobody else's business like Obviously, nobody's like, wow, you really like, you know, you know how to pick them or whatever. Richie was clearly portraying himself to be something that he was not. Mm -hmm. He was playing two people at the same time. He was playing the good, perfect boyfriend to Sam and also the crazy psycho killer with Amber. So just interesting duality between the two people that he's playing and the fact that like once we realize like there is no person with Sam like that is a fictitious person he's really just the person he is with Amber that his true colors come out and he's like wow you are so easy like okay I love too that that scene happens he says that when you have Sam and Sydney and Gail all in the same room as they start to become a united force. And you see these three different strong women together. And and the fact that he says that in the presence of these three women also influences the weight of it and their reaction that, you know, Gail and Sydney don't, as you might have seen in a movie past, say, you know, like, oh, wow, you sure know how to pick them mm-hmm. or, ooh, yeah, maybe watch who you date next time or anything. There's none of that. It's simply, here's this toxic person up against these three strong women. And it's the same with uh, Sydney, too. I mean, yeah, she dated Billy, but she dated somebody she thought she knew. And then nobody later is like, I think Gail might have mentioned something, but it's like when she and Sydney are still kind of at odds, like before they're like, you know what, we're on the same team. Like we're mm-hmm. you're making money from this. Just leave me alone. Don't like pry into my private life or whatever. But yeah, like they're all kind of like, no, we get it. Yeah. <laughs> like we've yeah. all made mistakes, you yeah. know, like we've all thought somebody was a person who they said they were and then they ended up not being. So we understand you. We embrace that. We appreciate you still for who you are and we're not going to judge you for your choices. Yeah. So speaking of that, though, what did you think about this kind of turnabout of Gail and Sydney, like becoming a united force? We kind of got it, I think, towards the end of the fourth movie, but really we get 
that full come about like, okay, we're on the same team in this movie. I like it. I think it's important too as we as we see this franchise move forward, I you can completely understand why they weren't on the same team throughout the franchise. Like mm-hmm. their conflict makes a lot of sense. But for them to be the last two women standing from the original, and really the last two people standing, unfortunately, um, Mm -hmm. because we do, you know, Dewey dies in this movie, I think it is the right choice for them to be united. What I dislike so often is when you do have the sort of last two women standing and you can't just like so much media dictates that women have to always be at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. And I like that this is like, no, we've had our differences and we figured them out and we're two very different people with very different lives and goals. You know, we know now Sydney is married and has kids and has, you know, that life. Gail is very focused on her career still, but they can still be united toward this common goal. And they've shared this common trauma for so many years. Right. Yeah, I like having them together. I would not have wanted to see them it wouldn't have felt right for either character, especially if we're really like celebrating Sydney as, mm. you know, being this enduring character that they haven't tainted, they haven't twisted her motives, and they didn't kill her off. I like that she and Gail can be can be a united front moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Because unfortunately in this movie we have the big emotional wallop of Dewey Riley's character being killed off finally. Dewey, the ever-present, ever-enduring survivor who was shot and stabbed and all kinds of stuff and was supposed to have been killed off in the second Scream movie, but ended up, like, his character kind of ended up coming through till the very bitter end in this one. And he, of course, dies a a hero in a blaze of glory, just as I'm sure he wanted. But his death really is the driving factor for Sydney to come back to Woodsboro and also for her and Gail to kind of, like, finally resolve all of their differences. And also... What does it say about time and space that both exactly. both of these women, you know, had left Woodsboro, had experienced life outside of a small town, had been distant and apart and kind of grown in their own separate ways to be able to say, you know what, those things that looked so big back then and so important and we're sorry, like Gail is sorry about, you know, invading Sydney's private life and Sydney is sorry about punching her. Well, no, I I guess she didn't punch her. I can't remember who punched her in the second one when she was at college, but she punches her in the first one. Okay. All right. Yeah. Then was it a friend that punches her in the second one? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Sydney punches her in the first one because she, when Gail comes to report on Casey and Steve's death, mm-hmm. Sydney walks right up and punches her. And, oh, that's and right. then we get Tatum saying like, whoa, did you see that? It's like, bam, bitch goes down. (laughs) I just remember that line. (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, like space and time and and being apart and knowing like those things might have seemed really big then, but we're sorry. And let's get over that and kind of bond and make new memories. Exactly. (laughs) Let's go on vacation away from (laughs) Ghostface. We've killed him again. Let's go. Because Sydney, initially, Dewey calls her and, like, I think he's trying to say, stay away. And she's like, yeah, I'm not coming coming anywhere close to that. But then when Dewey actually dies, then she has to come. Right. Because what is she going to do? Like, not acknowledge that one of her closest and oldest and dearest and most pincushiony friends, <laughs> a guy who had taken several bullets for her. It was definitely, I, I mean, I was not expecting to cry inside of a Scream movie. 
but that was uh it definitely got me choked up in the theater yeah it's you know it's a controversial choice but also like i think it was the right choice as i said when we were watching it it's like I get that they were going to kill one of the old characters off. Like, that's kind of how you, that's part of, like, what you do when you reignite a franchise. Sure. And if it were Gale, it wouldn't have had the same emotional impact. It would have just stomped Dewey down again, Mm -hmm. which we've seen over and over and over again. Like, Dewey has already lost so many people. I don't know that it would have been as impactful. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be Sydney. I mean, it could have been, but it wouldn't have been the right choice. There were mm-hmm. so many fans already that was like, man, they cannot kill Sydney Prescott. Like, right. we've seen that in other franchises where they do kill the main character or the final girl. And, you know, it's debatable whether that's the right choice. That often signals the franchise veering off in a very, very different direction. So if it couldn't have been those two... It, Dewey actually makes sense because it is what then draws Sydney out and it makes the most sense for her character to for that to be the thing that incites her character to come back and Dewey is the one who has nothing left to lose right he lives in a trailer he's no longer a sheriff like that was such a big part of his identity was being like the guy the right. guy who protects you know he no longer has Gail she's moved on she's in New York she's living her best life he drinks and he forlornly watches Gail on the television and kind of mourns what could have been because he couldn't hack it. He says he could not be in New York, although he is the one who broke things off. He's the one who left in the middle of the night because Gail said it was her turn to be the successful one. And Dewey, I don't think it was that he couldn't see her be successful. It's that he could not be away from a small town he couldn't hack it in like big time New York. Yeah. Because being somebody who was used to more of a small town life and had kind of thrived there, it's easy to feel like you're drowning in a big city. You're like, I've got things put together. I've figured out how to live my life. And then you get, you know, it's like a fish out of water story. Especially somebody who's been so defined by these traumas mm-hmm. of this movie. I mean, it's, um, we were both commenting. It's something that I understand now why, but always bugged me about the sequels. And I I love the sequels. But the one thing that always bothered me is with Dewey is that they never acknowledge that Tatum had died in the first one. It's Mm -hmm. like this person lost his sister to this killer. And they never acknowledge that. And I, I understand now, obviously, that everything with Harvey Weinstein and Rose McGowan has come out why they really pulled back from that character or acknowledging her at all in the franchise. But you start to see just how defined by loss and by these murders this person has been over the years. And we finally do get, we see Tatum's ashes in Dewey's trailer, Mm -hmm. which really his trailer is just like this gallery of loss, like his wedding photo with Gail and Tatum's ashes and, you know, his old sheriff gear. And you're like, wow, this is a person that has been so singularly defined by death and loss for so many years. And now that he's not actively responding to it, he doesn't know what to do with himself. Yeah, so probably the last time we're going to see David Arquette in the movies, which is a bit sad for me because it also marks a turning point because in all of the first four movies, Dewey is the ever-present, like, good, 
hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, he is very naive in the first movie. And that naivety kind of, like, keeps going throughout the movies. And this one, not there. He's like, yeah. I don't have Gail. I don't have my job. I live in a trailer. I don't have my family. He seems estranged even from his niece and nephew. Like, when he goes to visit Mindy and Chad... It, like their mom is kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to see you. You know, mm-hmm. like it definitely seems, uh, yeah, I don't know. Or, or no, sorry, Randy's niece and nephew, not his niece and nephew. But it definitely seems like, oh, we're really surprised to see you. I can't believe you got out of your trailer. You yell at everybody in your yard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, what did you think about? So, like, <laughs> the thing that I always thought was really interesting is that they kept bringing Cotton Weary back. They don't ever talk about Cotton in this one. No, he's not acknowledged at all, which is kind of kind of interesting. Perhaps that is something that they will leave to another movie. You know, mm-hmm. there is a danger when, especially when you're doing like a reboot kind of a moment like this, to cram too much yeah. in. And they certainly crammed a lot. Maybe that was a choice just like not revealing Sam and Tara's mom mm-hmm. that they'll save and do something with, you know, that is better served in a subsequent film. Yeah. Yeah, it was surprising, though, that there was, like, zero acknowledgement of him. Yeah. And, I mean, they really don't talk about Sydney's mom either. Like, no. But those are also stories that kind of could have finished in four. And maybe we're looking at new stuff. We're looking at only things in the past of the two people who kind of got the torch passed to them, Sam and Tara. So perhaps, like, Cotton Weary is just done, you know? Could be. Yeah. Because he's dead. His story's kind of dead. Like, unless they reveal some unknown fact about him or, like, a family member or something. Right. Well, and we still have Liv being the only unconnected one. So perhaps, although she's she's dead um, because she got shot. But that could be something that comes back up. Yeah. Is that, you know, we don't know anything about her or her family we could get a connection to that in a subsequent movie and maybe her family then connects us to someone else yeah. um, from the past. I was certainly interested about that. We we talked about that while we were watching through this time. I really was convinced that Liv was the one. Like, yeah, me the, too. Because at the beginning of the movie, when they're all kind of like on the picnic tables talking, which is very reminiscent of the original, you know, they're all like, oh, well, let's go to the hospital and visit Tara. And she's like, no, I'm not going and you're like, okay, well, why is she staying back? Is it because she wants to talk to Vince, who's parked outside her school like a creeper? Or is it for some other menacing reason? Right. And then the same thing happens several times throughout the movie. I mentioned to Juliet, there's a scene where she's at this party kissing Chad on the couch, and she's got her purse on. And then in another scene, she doesn't have it. But then when she comes back, she does. That could just be you know, inconsistency with the prop. It could just be, you know, but every little thing means something in movies like this. So I'm like keying in on that. There's also several weird conversations she has at the end at the party, like asking Mindy if she's scared of her. Then the whole thing where she's like, I found Chad and, and they're like, no, you didn't. You're, you know, they clearly think that it's her too. Yeah. She's been kind of sketchy. So She's always the one set apart from the friend group. There's always like some separation there. And obviously that's to build suspicion and to kind of swerve you in the wrong direction. But it is interesting. And I wonder if they won't pick up a thread on that in a subsequent film. They could easily do it, I think, because she, 
there's just a lot we don't know about her in a very, a very explorable way, I think. Yeah, Mindy just straight up doesn't like her probably because she's dating her brother. There has a tendency to be that trope of like, I don't like whoever you're dating. And Mindy and Chad are very, two very different people. So also could be partly that. Apparently there was a leaked ending because obviously in movies like this, you want to be very careful of leaks and spoilers. Mm -hmm. But on purpose, they wrote a leaked ending where the killers were Mindy and Liv. Oh, interesting. Which totally could have worked. They yeah. could have they could have plugged that in very easily. easily. Yep. Which I think kind of lends to the reason why they had that strange conversation between Mindy and Liv before because Mindy is having all sorts of weird conversations. She is, yeah. She's got a weird conversation in the basement with Amber. She's got a weird conversation with Liv in the family room when she's watching Stab, <laughs> which was super cool and very like double meta. Like she is watching a movie that was written about her uncle and the way he died. And like the same thing is happening where like Ghostface is behind her and you're like, oh my God, turn around. Like, yeah, it was so great. Yeah. But she actually does turn around. Yes. <laughs> Unlike her <laughs> uncle, unfortunately. So one of the things that you brought up before we started watching this movie and something that totally changes the way that you watch this movie is that initially they wrote that Tara and Amber were actually exes, like they were yes. ex-girlfriends. Yes. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I read that initially Amber and Tara were written as ex-girlfriends and although they didn't fully explore that in the final cut of the film, that a lot of the chemistry is retained in the movie, which, yeah, I, I mean, I suspected that even before I read that. I was like, are they, have they dated or is there kind of maybe some kind of one-sided attraction on either side? Mm -hmm. Or um, especially on Amber's part, there's a... Um, an interesting kind of possessiveness of Tara throughout. So yeah, that's my headcanon now is that they were definitely a couple because I think the film reads that way, whether or not it's explicitly said. Mm -hmm. She's absolutely protective of her. Amber is the one talking to Tara at the beginning, which is something that never really gets resolved, which I thought was interesting. We kind of just forget about it, but like that, Ghostface is taking video and sending it to Tara uh -huh. and but it, like Tara's phone got cloned or whatever but maybe Ghostface just didn't do anything with it and I was like meh that's not really like Ghostface he doesn't really like to leave loose ends yeah. um, any time ever they're pretty stab happy do you think the intention was to kill Tara or do you think Amber was going to spare her that is a good question I thought that she, so initially I thought they would spare her, but I also thought, how in the world would you be able to get Tara back on your side yeah. as somebody, because it's very clear, I think, that Amber cares for her a lot and is very possessive in a very controlling way. Mm -hmm. um, like, for instance, Tara's like, oh, my spare inhaler is at Amber's. I have to go right. to Amber's to get my spare inhaler, right. which an inhaler, a rescue inhaler, that's a crucial thing that you need to have all the time. So the fact that she has one there, Amber's always there at the hospital with her. She kind of like steps in between, you know, Sam and Tara being able to have an actual relationship. So I think you're right. Like it definitely is 100% a through line that 
there's a one-sided, at the very least, a one-sided attraction or that they used to date. And it's just not something that they had time to like, oh, yeah, they used to date it, but now they're friends and it's fine. Because not being able to kind of dilute that and make it not obvious that that's a motive to kill would have taken too long with all of the other stuff that they have sprinkled in. So. I think the intent would have been, and obviously the plans went awry because of Sam and Sydney and Gail, that um, Amber tied up Tara in the closet so that, because Amber was super obviously the mastermind, like Mm -hmm. Richie was just her little plaything and her means to an end, which I'll get into that more here in a second. Mm -hmm. But I think the goal would have been, and stop me if I'm reading too much into this, tie up Tara kill everybody else and then amber blames the whole thing on richie to keep tara on her side that's a good point you know and it also gets rid of her messy sister you know coming back into town exactly like okay well i killed your sister so now i have you to myself yeah to do what i want with yeah now i think that that's probably what her master plan was because yeah we were talking about this towards the end of the movie there's very clear parallels and queer coded or not, which tiny plug for the Slay Away podcast, yeah. which we were guests on uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure when that's going to air yet, but they are getting ready to do a panel about the Scream films and queer coding in the Scream films. Yes. And I definitely think I see those parallels in the first Scream movie. At least to me, it seems very obvious that Billy is like dangling affection attention whether it's physical love or it's just emotional connection he's dangling that with Stu, and Stu's always the one kind of like grasping at that and in this movie it's very much the same with our two killers again with amber being the one dangling the affection at richie because we know that they have a relationship but we're not exactly sure what at what point that relationship is currently we just know that they are both kind of like on the same track but amber dangling that affection and attention and emotional connection over richie and then richie being the one to kind of like grasp at it Mm -hmm. so interesting parallels there definitely yeah and i think making amber obviously the mastermind and the one dangling the affection i mean like Let's be real, it's still real icky that Richie is obviously a man in his 20s and is, I mean, we don't know at all the extent of their relationship, but at the end, they're kind of like being intentionally flirty, he and Amber, once it's revealed that they've been working together Mm -hmm. um, and they've had some kind of relationship on the internet. I think Amber was the one in control there and Mm -hmm. manipulating him and all of that, and it doesn't necessarily just because it was flirty mean that it was a sexual relationship, but the sheer fact that Richie was like down for, you know, down for engaging with a teenage girl who was obviously dangling this affection toward him is just like icky. But having it be the fact that Amber was in control at least keeps us from getting too far down the sort of like, predator rabbit hole of it all i think definitely so a big theme in this movie and one that i think is might it might be a little bit easy to overlook because it is a slasher just by nature of the fact that it's a horror movie is not running from who you are and honoring where you came from 
definitely a message in this movie, both in canon and also kind of outside of it, you know, with Scream as like a film in the real world, honoring the movies that came before it while also acknowledging that it is its own thing, as well as our characters in the movie, Sydney honoring the fact that she came from so much loss and trauma, but that it doesn't define her anymore and that she still has a life outside of it. Gail, same thing. Sam also finally coming to the point where she can honor the fact that she knows that her father was a serial killer or a mass murderer, serial killer. I don't know exactly the right uh, (laughs) nomenclature there. I think serial killer, but acknowledging, yes, my dad was a serial killer. Yes, I've been having these psychotic episodes where I see my dad and he's giving me advice, but also being able to harness that and control it and own it and know that, hey, yeah, my dad did some really messed up stuff, but also it turned me into a survivor and it allowed me to kill Richie Because she totally could have just spared him and like, you know, okay, I've got you tied up. I'll let the authorities deal with you. No, she could not let that pass. And her her dad and her dad's influence in her could not let that happen. So interesting theme that I think it's easy to kind of overlook that. We're like, yay, it's a slasher movie. It's like, no, this movie is also about honoring where you came from and knowing that you don't have to let it define you. Well, and even in the making of this film, you know, a lot of um, a lot of people in the horror community have commented on the fact that the filmmakers very intentionally said in the sort of requel, revival, whatever you want to call it, of the Scream franchise, we're not dropping any of the movies. They very intentionally kind of made a dig at Halloween, actually Halloween uh, 2018, because, you know, Halloween 2018 is a reboot of the franchise, but it eliminates quite a few of the sequels, Mm -hmm. um, which is like a common practice now. Like, oh, we're going to do a sequel slash reboot, but we're going to start it at the end of the third one or the second one or whatever, because we don't want to acknowledge, you know, with some of these franchises, the seventh or eighth movie that everybody has decided is air quotes trash, you Mm -hmm. know, or convolutes the story too much. And we don't want to take the writing challenge, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it comes down to like, what what do you want to do with the writing? Like, we don't want to take the writing challenge of like trying to make that work. But Mm -hmm. the filmmakers for uh, Scream very intentionally were like, no, all the sequels happened. We're not taking anything away. We're not starting this after the first one and, you know, going from there or doing like a 30 years later after the first one. Like they Mm. all they're all valid. They all count. We acknowledge and celebrate them all as part of the history of this franchise. And we're going to move it forward from here. So even in the in the very intentional making of this movie, we see kind of that acceptance of where you come from. Unfortunately, the horror community is not exempt from this. In fact, it's. It's very clear in the actual movie itself that it kind of tackles this. Unfortunately, we have a lot of hate for sequels. We have a lot of folks who have really high standards or really high hopes for making a a film like this, especially because it's a well-loved franchise. It's been around for a really long time. We still have a lot of the actors still, you know, working and acting that were in the original movie. But unfortunately, you have really, really, really high standards when it comes to pleasing those fans. And often you have movies get panned. Movies are just outright. I mean, 
they even discuss in this movie, like, they, they make a lot of allusions to Star Wars, to The Last Jedi, like, Stab 8. Yeah, <laughs> episode eight is the last Jedi. You know, they talk about the guy who directed Knives Out, which is Ryan Johnson, who also directed it. But there is never going to be a time like we all remember the first time we saw the Scream movie. If you love the franchise, you remember the first time you watched it. There is never going to be a sequel that will make you feel the exact same way that that first movie made you feel. It's just an unfortunate fact. Yeah. Nothing like. <laughs> will ever live up to the way that you remember that movie in yeah. your head. And unfortunately, that makes it so that fans can't accept new ideas. They can't see new people in those franchises. They can't abide by, you know, the torch being passed from one final girl to the other, which is very unfortunate because those things are what makes new fans come into loving those beloved franchises. I mean, really, this is going to be a whole year of franchise discussion. We've got the new Texas Chainsaw movie, which we'll do another time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We've got Scream. We've got Halloween Ends, which is supposed to be the be-all, end-all. Jamie Lee Curtis is done, you know, and that movie has wrapped filming. We've got this movie. So this is definitely going to be a year of franchise discussion. And I'm sorry to disappoint our fans, but Juliet and I will give, we give pretty much everything the benefit of the doubt the first time we watch it. Yeah. But this movie, I think really, it encapsulates what is new and what is great and what is emerging about horror in 2022 while being clever and timely, but still honoring what came 25 years ago in a way that. I think is very pleasing for me. It warms my heart. I I wouldn't say this for many other horror films, but I went out of them thinking like, went out of the theater thinking, oh, my heart. Yeah. It made me feel good. Yeah. Although I was still sad about Dewey, but it still made my heart feel good to see two very strong, young, passionate actresses that want to participate in horror at the end of this movie, knowing okay, we're probably going to get a six here, so. Yeah, well, and what warms my heart, too, is that in the revival of this franchise, they did stay true to what the Scream franchise has always been, which is it's a horror film with commentary about horror as a genre. Yeah. I love that, um, where they go all the way up to almost breaking the fourth wall and talking directly to you, the fans, about sort of the state of the genre or trends in the genre, depending on the movie and the franchise. And they did that in this one, just like they did in all of the others. And they did it so very well. And really, I think it was pretty bold to say some of the things that they were saying, because, you know, we all know about toxic fandom at Mm -hmm. this point, but it's also like the elephant in the room. It is so often in, especially in terms of, the industry, you know, the air quotes industry. It's like the thing we don't talk about enough. Right. It's the thing that those who have to bear the brunt of toxic fandom talk about amongst themselves. And, you know, more often than not, those who are bearing the brunt of toxic fandom are women, are fans of color, are disabled fans, are new fans to the genre, whose views are, you know, are edged out by toxic fans. And so for a movie, for a major franchise to offer up some commentary on it in a playful and kind and accessible way, but still talking directly to the audience is really, really refreshing. 
Yeah, it's definitely a challenge in writing to incorporate four previous movies into a movie. But also, it's an even tougher challenge to both make what Tara's character says is elevated horror, which is horror that also has a prescient message for the viewer about something that is not horror. Like The Babadook, she says that that's her favorite movie, which... We love the Babadook. That's fine. Absolutely. But interesting that they accomplished making both a horror movie that is a slasher and a stabby movie, and you've got like blood and stuff, but also a movie that has something more meaningful to say about the genre and about fandom and things like that. So what a challenge to be able to incorporate all those things together. And also, I think that they made something that is relevant and can be enjoyed by both people who are making movies or enjoy films that are have something more to say, like an elevated horror film, like pretty much anything A24 puts out, or things that are very, you know, it's surface level. Yeah, definitely. So it's nice to see that kind of thing happen in a movie, especially now. Yeah, it's nice to kind of have a place to meet in the middle. Like, I think a lot of different types of fans can enjoy and get something out of this one. Yeah, and one of the things that you mentioned before we watched this movie is talking about being able to peg who the killer is. Yeah. Because we were both struggling with that the first time. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, that's part of the fun of the Scream franchise, you know, is it's one part slasher and one part, like, almost like a detective movie where you're trying to pick up on the clues that the filmmakers have left for you and figure out who's suspicious and who's got motive and all of that. And I really enjoyed that in this one because they did a really good job. They had the poster come out fairly close to the release and it's the entire main cast and it says the killer is on this poster. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, obviously it's one of them. And it's smart because the good thing about the original Scream was that they didn't bring a character out of left field to be the killer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was somebody that you were, two people that you were with the entire time. And it was really fun because you went in very consciously knowing, okay, somebody, or because it's Scream, two somebodies, multiple somebodies, is the killer. And I had a great time going, oh, it's this person. No, wait, maybe it's this person. No, wait, maybe it's this person. It's a trick of a film, right? Because... On the one hand, there's the expectation that you don't make it too easy. Mm-hmm. And to go back to toxic fandom, like there's this whole thing of like, I think sometimes people go too far with being like, well, I knew who the killer was the entire time. And there's a point of pride there. And like, you're, you know, you're an idiot if you didn't, you know, if you didn't figure it out five minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is then. If they make it too easy, then it's too obvious. Like, you kind of put the filmmakers in a Mm catch-22, where if it's not who you thought it was, well, then the writing was bad. But if it's too easy, then the writing was also... (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, But I like it. I have fun with that. Like, I like being tricked and, and, you know, second-guessing myself throughout the movie. And then I love going back and watching the second time and trying to follow the breadcrumbs that they've left for me throughout the movie. Yeah, there's a part where Sam calls Richie and says, the sheriff's dead. And Richie goes, oh, you can't. Oh, you can do that. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> and like he catches himself and it's like, oh, that was clearly. <laughs> yeah, that's clearly a hint because he's like watching a YouTube video at the same time and they're like dissecting stab eight and this whole thing. So it's 
plausible that, you know, he's like confusing the movie and real life together. But now we see it and we're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I love him in particular, too, because the first time when we were going along with it and he had said, you know, tells the uh, the what we know is an obvious lie, like a big lie that he's never seen any of the stab movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you watch him start to watch them throughout the movie and get engaged with this material and you see his kind of enthusiasm come out. Like Sam calls him and he's like, did you know this and this and this and this? And what's kind of fun about that is the first time you're watching it, you're like, oh, man, like this is somebody locking in with something new and going like way deep, which like, hi, I've been there, you know, <laughs> where all of a sudden like you're engaging with something and like you're in it. The flip side of that is we know now that he was actually really, had been really, really obsessed with this franchise for a long time. And so that kind of did you know was almost his true self coming out and we're getting glimpses of that throughout. So I like that that plays both ways, depending on which watch you're on with the film. Yeah. Okay, so my last thing I want to bring up is the problem of Stu, the problem of Stu Mocker. Okay, the problem so, of Stu Mocker. So we never see Stu die. Right. So a couple weekends ago was Horror Hound in Cincinnati, which I did attend. And I had a photo taken with Nev Campbell. My partner was like really excited. And I did not know that he wanted me to be in this picture <laughs> until the morning of, which would have been nice to know a couple of days before. So I could have like made myself at all presentable. But anyways, <laughs> um, so... There, they had a a reunion, a scream reunion, where Jamie Kennedy was there, Nev Campbell was there, uh, Matthew Lillard was there, Ski Ulrich was there. And let me just say, I went into the room where all these folks were signing. It was an absolute madhouse. It was nuts. Like, we're still living in a pandemic, and I was wearing my mask, but there were so few. Anyways, that's a discussion on something else. (laughs) (laughs) But it was packed in there. It was absolutely just packed wall-to-wall people. So I wonder, do you think, with everybody's love of Matthew Lillard now in 2022 land, do you think that they will bring him back? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know if that's right for the story, if I'm being perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Like, Like, that's the trap with all of this is, on the one hand, like, would it be cool to see Stu back? Mm -hmm. Of course it would. You know, that moment, that reveal, whatever that would be, would be really cool. You know, everybody would, we always use the term in wrestling, like, the crowd would pop for that. You know, everybody would be like, oh, oh oh my gosh. (laughs) But I wonder, with what this franchise is known for what it does really well is that the best choice for the story they're trying to tell or Mm -hmm. would that be the easy way out yeah i don't know now the scream franchise is so clever that maybe they could write it in a way that has something to say about doing that yeah you know because i've seen that go right and i've seen that go wrong in horror and just in franchises and television shows in general. I mean, like, that's honestly, like, the oldest soap opera trope in the book (laughs) is the person, you know, that you thought, I mean, normally in soap operas, it's like their evil twin or something. But, you know, (laughs) 
you know, the doctor that whose car careened off the cliff in the storm shows back up one day. I mean, like, that was legit one of my favorite soap opera plot points from when I used to watch it when I was a kid is this character that I thought was dead came back and I was very happy. <laughs> um, anywho, but like, it's kind of hackneyed at this point. I say mm-hmm. it's a trope because it's a trope and it's kind of, it can be kind of cheesy sometimes. Yeah. So I don't know, like he maybe could come back, but God, it would have to be written in exactly the right way or I don't want it. Yeah. You know, that's kind of where I fall with stuff like that in a franchise is like, this term is so dangerous and I hate this term, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't bring a character back just for fan service. Yeah. And I hate the term fan service. Yeah. Because because that's what everything is. That's what everything (laughs) is, literally. It's such a loaded term. Like, whatever. It's kind of bullshit. But, like, don't bring a character back. My whole thing is, like, everything in a film should serve the story. And if it doesn't serve the story, if it doesn't make sense for the story you're trying to tell, like, don't do it just to do it. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Man. Okay, that feels like something off my shoulders, like, that we've finally <laughs> done this Scream movie. I've just been, I know. I've had know. it all, like, bottled up inside since January when we got the privilege of seeing it, and now I'm like, oh, now I can rest. I know. <laughs> now we can move forward with yeah. other things. Yeah, what are we doing? I think we're doing something really special after this. Yeah, yeah. I think next time, cross fingers, and I'm going to just couch this with... I'm pretty sure this is going to be next time, provided that schedules link up exactly the way they should. We are going to have a guest, our first ever guest. And so if we come back and we don't have a guest, that just means that we had to rearrange some recording times and we'll have something equally cool for you. But theoretically, we will have our first guest next time. And we'll also be continuing on our Midnight Mass journey our bonus journey and so obviously those are coming out on saturday nights periodically we will sprinkle them in to your feed so um as always if you haven't already subscribe so you don't miss anything follow us on social too but definitely subscribe to the podcast and if you're feeling extra spicy rate and review because it helps us out a lot and it helps other folks in the horror community connect with us yay yay Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Bye.